Those of you who've listened to the podcast have heard me talk about Clear Audio's headphones. They're incredibly comfortable and their sound quality punches way above their weight. Well, today's guest is Aaron Levine, the vice president of marketing behind Clear Audio. And it's a real treat, not only due to his partnership in providing the headphones for the Standard Age podcast, but because he allows for great insight into a company that has been steady building their brand in what can only be described as a saturated market. We dive deep into the what's, how's, and why's Clear Audio does what they do, what sets them apart, and we end the show with what will possibly make its way into your living room. I really enjoyed Aaron's candor and in-depth look at their consumer electronics business, and I think you will also. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Aaron, thanks for uh, being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to jump off, where where exactly are you from? So I'm from uh, Orange County, just a, an hour and 20 minutes north. Grew up in Huntington Beach and then Dana Point and then, uh, went away for school uh, for four years in Arizona, University of Arizona, so down in Tucson. And then after graduating, moved to L.A., lived in L.A. for about seven years and been in San Diego ever since. Cool. So as a kid, Huntington Beach, were you skateboarding? Were you surfing? Like what? Skateboarding, surfing. You know, you name it in the water. We were doing it. Junior lifeguards, the the whole thing. I think it's a fun environment um, to grow up in, especially in that kind of community. Yeah, for sure. And what'd your folks do? Uh, they're both school teachers. Oh, so my cool. mom taught uh, both elementary and then eventually high school. And my dad's been a college professor, physics and astronomy, and and then my mom did all the the U.S. history and government and all that fun stuff. So it was that's a uh, pretty well rounded. <laughs> Absolutely. Repertoire, I would say, to, to grow up in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, school is definitely an emphasis, especially with uh, my parents, and you know, kind of led me to where I'm at today. And it's it's interesting that their um, emphasis on education and just you know general knowledge and and understanding of stuff is a it was a huge aspect of uh, my upbringing. Sure. So did some of those things come naturally to you or like, were you drawn to any certain subject because of it? Or were you turned off by physics, for example? (laughs) No, it's funny you said that. I was actually highly interested in it, just never that good. So I had, you know, my brain more or less functioned towards the, you know, you know, communication, English, written word, just uh, history, that stuff. But I was always really fascinated. Like, you know, my dad would take me on like astronomy, you know, um, um, like excursions, yeah, excursions. We'd go to the desert and check out stars and, you know, different astrological events that would happen. Um, but it just like, as fascinating as it was, like you go into that schoolwork and the, the mathematics of it and that stuff. And it's just never, never was my cup of tea. Although I went through the whole thing and, you know, I always have fun stories like, you know, you know, my dad taught at Orange Coast College. So it was a local community college in Orange County. And so he also did these telecourses. Um, as one of the projects that he would work on outside of his normal teaching job. And so these telecourses, especially around astronomy, had led to a bunch of opportunities for him to meet other professors as he would interview these leading researchers in the field of astronomy. Fast forward 20 years later, I'm in college taking an astronomy course as a freshman, and the professor says, do you have any you know, relationship to Joel Levine and like, look at my, well, yeah, that's my dad. He's like, 
I've known him for years. It's like he said he was you're going to be you possibly could be taking one of my classes. And so the next thing I know, I had an invite to dinner and uh, now I had to show up to this 8 a.m. class as an 18 year old. And yeah, th- there you have it. That's that's crazy. So what did you end up studying at U of A? So I was a communication major. OK, so still the written word. Yeah, still the written word, how to communicate, how to tell stories. And then uh, I minored in a, you know kind of a, a mix. It wasn't straight media arts, but it was more of a, a mixture between media arts and uh, um, um, history. So were you always just into like creative writing and stuff like that, too? Um, as much of creative, but really convincing people. I think it was kind of one of those things that, yeah, my mom always told me at, the, at an early age, I always had a good story of why I needed something or why I wanted to go do something or why it was okay for me to, to go do something. Um, sometimes it led to trouble. Sometimes it, it led to um, quite a bit of fun. So you're kind of a natural salesperson then, I guess. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say as much sales, but I think everybody just does. Persuasive. It, just, just more <laughs> that persuasive, but it, but it was also the ability to, to help tell that story and the, the fun aspect of that storytelling that goes into it. Sure. I think it's been that, that way as I started out in my career in public relations and helping tell stories of brands and products to really getting more into the general marketing mix and leveraging that storytelling capability to, you know, tell product stories and brand stories. And, you know, I think all of us are salespeople to an extent, whether it's a, your specific title, but, you know, ultimately as you go through your career, you have to be able to not only sell yourself, but sell your work to other people. Sure. So what were some of your first jobs then? So be uh, it when you're 16. Sure. Yeah, sure. My first job, um, as a 16 year old, I worked for an electrician. So I knew what it was like to uh, roll up my sleeves and get really dirty on construction sites or, or uh, um, work with uh, you know, people, especially in, the, in Southern California, hanging ceiling fans. Spent an entire summer you know, hanging ceiling fans with a you know, family friend who uh, had an electrical business and you know, kind of learned you know, what it was like to, to do manual labor and physical labor, but also to use my brain. I mean, it's amazing what electricians have to encounter, both uh, in a problem-solving aspect of it. And it was, it was a fascinating summer. And then from there, I worked for an event marketing firm so doing field promotions. So everything from handing out soft drinks on the beach to um, talking about, uh, you know, collect call services, uh, if it ages me um, specifically. So right, I don't sure. know how many people make collect calls nowadays uh, yeah. versus uh, just hop on a cell phone. Yeah, for sure. I guess when you graduated from college, what was sort of the, the foray into where you're at now? I guess you were in PR. Yeah, well, I think that like each one of my my jobs, especially as I started doing some field marketing and event promotion stuff, led to interest when I was in school. And I think that was kind of part of where I landed at, not only with a communications major, but also you know my cross disciplinary uh, minor, because I I couldn't focus on one thing because I was so interested in many different things. Um, and really the crux of it is I, was, I loved entertainment. I loved watching movies. I loved learning about like, you know, the cinema in general. And then of course I was a huge music fan. So I, I still am today. And it kind of, you know, you build off some of your personal interests as well as what you can learn in school and uh, being able to tell stories, not just in a journalistic way, but being able to tell them in a, you know, conversational way became really fascinating with, you know, not only in persuasiveness, but, you know, just general uh you know interest and so as i graduated you know it's like then what what do you do next um and you know just looking for opportunity and ended up uh 
you know, getting a, an internship up in LA as, as most of us do. And, you know, really uh, seeing what it's like to not only live on your own, but live on your own without a whole lot of money coming in. Yeah. And so uh, luckily I had a, a very generous, I had great aunt and great uncle that invited me to, to stay with them for, to get on my feet. Nice. And, uh, you know, worked my way from an internship at a, at a small PR agency. And, you know, it's just one job after another and following that kind of opportunity as well as passion. Um, I think after my second PR agency job, I saw an opening at Pioneer Electronics when they were located up in Long Beach and I applied and, you know, it was part of that passion of, yes, I liked electronics and, you know, consumer electronics specifically, but in the, the audio and entertainment space. And, you know, you can imagine like working for a company like that, like I wasn't the only candidate and starting to talk to the product teams and the people that were there in the interview process. And they're asking me like, well, what equipment do you have? And I started telling them like, well, it's not very good, but I borrowed this and I, you know, took this from my dad and I, you know, rebuilt this. And, you know, one thing led to another and they were, I was one of only a handful of the candidates that they spoke to that actually had practical knowledge of the their business, of, of yeah. the products, whether it was theirs or just in general and an in interest in the industry. And ultimately like, you know, even till today, it, it's like, we still work in an entertainment field. You know, we're still trying to provide products for people to enjoy, not just to sell hardware. And right? that or, role was a PR role? Yeah. So I did PR at Pioneer Electronics for just south of five years. And then uh, um, while I was at Pioneer, I was uh, um, got contacted by Sony Electronics. And, you know, they really liked what I was doing for Pioneer. And that Sony is what brought me down to San Diego. And uh, it was uh, in two th late 2005. And uh, I was at Sony for close to 10 years, uh, working in, started out in PR, and then, again, finding interests within the organization. Um, we had always been interested in product development, and product marketing um, aspects of it, and different areas of how to approach the business. And, you know, got connected with a couple of uh, the executives there that liked what I was doing in the PR side and, and understood my knowledge and passion, said, hey, look, we could take this and really make some money with you. Um, and helping guide some of our product categories and businesses. So I started, you know, out small as an associate product manager and um, ended up helping with some of the first uh, soundbars that Sony brought to market. And then from soundbars went to speakers and AV receivers and multi-room audio systems. And, you know, just was always willing to try something new that I found fascinating, whether it was from an electronic side or an execution to enjoy entertainment. And that helped put me in a position to develop some products and change some of the perception of Sony as a company when it came to audio in the U.S. market. So what uh, what kind of music were you into growing up versus like even say today? Well, um, really, I, I listen to most music, except for I'm, I'm just not a fan of country. I'm pretty sure that my limited exposure has to do with my upbringing on the West Coast and my parents not listening to country music. Um, but some of the, the older stuff like Johnny Cash, um, absolutely have some, some deep appreciation for, um, mostly like rock music, love classic rock. Um, you know, it's really where my, my mom's inner hippie kind of had an influence. I spent, um, quite a few years in junior high school, um, driving to her school. I went to where she taught, um, while she was still a middle school teacher and it was those long morning commutes from our house where she was listening to, uh, for those of you that are still in the Southern California area, K-Earth 101. So the oldies at that time, but now they've only gotten, you know, even more aged. But, you know, that's kind of every morning and every evening, you know, driving home with her, you know, really starting to have those conversations about what it was like of 
of the music and and that aspect and the fact that she taught history was a different element because she was talking about the historical significance of a lot of the music and how it applied to our culture um, and you know really what was happening in society and the stories that they told and then you start to parallel that to you know more current music and you and you really start to see a deeper level of how you know, music plays within society and culture and, and, you know, gets, whether it's a movement that it generates or, uh, you know, makes a statement, you can see it, you can even see it with a lot of the stuff that happened at the Grammys uh, recently. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're developing products at Sony and, and such, are you focused on any certain type of music or environment? I mean, you're, it sounds like you're dealing a lot with home audio, obviously, not like automotive, you know, car stereos and such. So it really comes into, you know, that live music experience. And so part of where I get really excited about music is seeing a live show. Sure. I think that you only have a certain amount of appreciation for an artist listening to them, whether it's on the radio or, or streaming their content. But once you hear them live and you see not just how they handle themselves on stage, but their um, musicianship, um, you know, not something that's been produced, you really see a different kind of element for that um, audience. Uh, for that artist and then you see the audience reaction as well sure so i try to see a lot of live shows and you know within the audio space i mean the biggest opportunity you have is to try and recreate that live experience for the end user and so a lot of where we focused our attention while i was at sony or sound united or now here at clear um it was always about how do you recreate or give that consumer the closest opportunity to hear you know, the music as it was intended by the artist, whether it was a live performance or a recording um, studio. I mean, there's so many nuances in music creation from the instrument to the recording engineer and how they want it to sound that we have a, a huge responsibility as an audio brand to be able to convey that, not in our interpretation, but try to convey it as closest to the interpretation of what the artist wanted so that, you know, we can have that relationship and be that conduit where that consumer can go right back into that. Oh yeah. I remember hearing, you know, this band 20 years ago or 10 years ago or last week. And wow, this is like, it's we, the pitch is right. The, the tonality is right. The range of frequency that we can recreate is, is right. And, and does justice to it. And there's tons of ways to be able to do it. Um, you know, in, in any iteration, but a lot of times you get stuck with, product that you just don't know how it's being developed and some of it's just you know whether it's a mass production or not like there's a level of tuning that happens a physical tune or um, a qualification to make sure that it sounds right because when you just produce something it, it's just how it is right sure. but there's always an element that can be tweaked whether it's uh, through software or through physical um, alterations of a product before you go into production I think it's it's one of the things that I, I really learned not just in my time at Pioneer but at Sony and, and even Sound United sitting down and talking to a lot of engineers and it's it's not done because something was built, right? It's uh, There's many, many weeks and, and months that happen after the product has been created to make sure that it sounds right. So you've mentioned Sound United a couple different times. So mm -hmm. assuming you left Sony for Sound United? I did. Okay. I did. And so Sound United is a, a holding company that oversees um, a handful of uh, um, iconic audio brands. So Denon, Marantz. Polk Audio, Definitive Technology, um, a multi-room company called Heos, as well as um, a, a, another high-end esoteric brand um, that uh, they also support as well. Gotcha. And so what was sort of the role there? So I was the head of global marketing. And so I oversaw all the brands, uh, go-to-market strategies, uh, um, 
across the globe. So I had uh, teams spread out everywhere and it was kind of, uh, you know, my job to make sure that we help set the direction to achieve the goals of the organization across the different brand strategies, but also the product strategies of what would make sense and make sure that we had as, as much resources that we could um, into those markets to help the sales organizations achieve their goals. So I think part of where marketing has this cross effect, it's like we can do a lot of things to elevate a brand, but we also have to help sell the product. And there's variations or ways to be able to do that. And one of those ways is how do you get product to not just into a store, but sell sold through the store as well. And so what I mean by that is like, you know, not just training of the sales associates, but what items are you doing to drive traffic into the store? What are you doing when the customer's at the store to help make sure that they're making the right choice? So is it the right PR relationships that you have? and the reviews that are going on around the product so that they can see that there's, you know, viability and we, you know, just just don't check the box on tech on features because a lot of people can do that, but are we really delivering against those features and making it a, a valuable proposition and a a lifestyle or a, you know, cuz a, a lot of our product it's yeah, although I feel like everybody should have headphones and everybody should have speakers and a sound system, that they're not needs, they're wants. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a necessity, right? Well, for some, it's not a necessity. I, I like for to you, disagree. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, not just for me, but, but, you know, even, even in my, my family, like music's a big part of our, our life. You know, it's uh, we love seeing live shows. We love listening to music. There's always music on. I think, you know, there's more music in our house than there is TV most nights. You know, it's, it's usually, whether it's a background or a, you know, a concentrated li- like listening effort i think like you know it's always fun for me to come home from work and see my 11 year old on the floor of my bedroom listening to vinyl with some headphones on and reading a book you know that's what she likes to do you know she loves that experience she likes that tactile feel of picking out an album putting it on and really getting energized and you know it's one of those fun things that we do together and even with my my 13 year old like both my daughters will take them out and we'll go vinyl shopping that's awesome where um so who was the who's the last show you saw live um wow that's that's fairly easy because um my wife and i and kids we just completed quite a bit of live shows at the end of last year so we went and saw as to my kids choice chain smokers okay we saw lizzo when she was in town um we unfortunately missed sarah borellis because we had tickets but i had recent surgery and that kind of conflicted uh with that night, uh, um, Matt and Kim, um, when they were in town. And so it, it's, it's really, it, it ebbs and flows depending on who comes and visits, uh, um, San Diego. Like right now we're really excited about Pearl Jam coming back to town. It's been a couple of years since they've been here and, yeah. and those were hard tickets to, to get for not just the San Diego, but the LA venue as well. I was actually at their last San Diego, um, tour, I guess, tour stop. And, um, that was actually the first time I'd ever seen Pearl Jam. Oh, wow. Which was kind of crazy because that was the first CD I ever bought was Pearl Jam 10. Okay. Which I've, I, that's actually something else I, I often ask just people, not on the podcast, but just in life. I'm always like, what was the first CD you ever bought? But what, what was yours? So first CD? CD, yeah. Specifically was um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, was it a... Blood Sugar, Blood Sugar Sex, Ma- yeah, yeah. Sex Magic. Sex Magic, yeah. Yeah, that was my, my first CD. Yeah, with God, my, my disc music back then too, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, these are all timeless records. 
Yeah, absolutely. And they still, they, they definitely stand up and there's, there's different elements. I mean, I think that, you know, as you develop audio products and really your love inside of just listening and helping people reconnect with music, whether it's current or older, there's always, you know, a level of memory that's triggered based on like this one song or this one album of like the time in your life, whether it's happy or sad being picked up or, or helping get through certain times. Like everybody always relates back to music and it's yeah. one of those, you know, mem- you know, trigger memories, right. That, you know, everything of the emotions flood back in. Yeah. I've, I've was talking about it the other day. It's like music has that way of like transporting you back to the place where you first heard it very, very often. And it's just, I don't, there's not much else in life that can do that really. No, I think it's a maybe sense. Yeah, besides know, music, smells. It's like smells and and taste is another one that really brings back people into uh, you know different times of life or memories. But I think it's a uh, it's fascinating and yeah, again, it's that responsibility when you work in the audio business to make sure that you're creating products that can provide that like sensory um, experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the more you get exposed to audio um, of of any kind, you start to appreciate the music more and more um and the the elements that it delivers because it's fascinating to know like you know i've listened to very high-end systems as well as really entry level and there's a level of transparency to that music experience that you can get from every aspect of it you know yeah some of it you need to know what you're doing or what you're listening for but you know as you develop products you want to make sure that no matter if it's that 99 dollar pair of headphones it does as good of a job as you can in that price point based on the material that you're provided in order to, to give that, you know, best in class experience for consumers. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about clear. Um, what was the jump off point for clear? Like how did it all begin? So with clear, um, for me joining, it's, it's been just about a year. Uh, I think that the opportunity really came for, um, our CEO, Patrick, um, back in 2015, uh, the brand was fairly dormant. Um, it was still held by a couple of investors that he got connected to and there was always potential cause they had access to some technology and, you know, Patrick and I met, um, at our days at Sony and he was both in the, the headphone business as well as uh, digital imaging. And, you know, he just kind of looked at this opportunity to actually create something in his vision, um, for what consumers would want and to be able to do things that were unrestricted from the the bigger corporations and their directions and, and limitations, right? Because when you get to a large brand, you have to maintain that brand presence and that direction and that engine. And sometimes you can't experiment and you can't do things that are the right approach for the end user because you're, you're just too big. So the impetus was more or less to develop a more boutique type of brand. Yeah, not just boutique, but something that, um, one, San Diego specific. I mean, we're, we're all, you know, fairly... Uh, Southern California native, uh, as you can get in that, in this part. Um, you know, I've been in San Diego for, well, about 15, 16 years at this point. Um, Patrick's been in San Diego probably about the same amount of time. Um, my wife's from San Diego. So it's, it's wanting to make sure that we could not just be another company, but be something that's meaningful to not only our community, but, uh, to the market and given different opportunity, whether it's a high design approach or um, a sonic creation that you know we could do. I mean, it, the there's a, a ton of advantages of having been in the industry for so many years because we have the context. We have the context to you know 
our, our neighbors, Qualcomm. I mean, they're a huge chip manufacturer in the audio space, um, and they provide a lot of support and guidance to us. And, and it's been a great relationship with a lot of the, the first we've been able to deliver with some of our products based on not only our proximity to Qualcomm's offices, but our, our longtime relationship um, that we've had over the course of the career. Same thing goes with some of our retail partners that we've known these guys um, and gals for many years before we both joined Clear and put it into the direction that, it, that we're at now. And so as we continue to introduce new products, it's kind of, it's great to see the amount of impact that we can have um, both nationally as well as locally. So what's the process like prototyping something like headphones or anything like that? Because like I'm coming from an apparel background, right? So it's a easy skip up, you know, the five freeway to LA and I'm like in fabric houses, I'm in trims and, you know, production facilities and I can get a sample in, in the matter of months very easily. And, you know, cotton might be a little more straightforward <laughs> than say, you know, an electronics board, but maybe Qualcomm helps in that regard. But what, what's that proto prototyping process like? Um, it takes the better part of a year, if not longer, depending on organizations, um, you know, and the complexity of a product. And first and foremost, just like in any um, industry, you have to come up with the idea first. And then the practicality of the idea, the market opportunity within that idea, and then figure out how you're going to make it, both in a technical and a design orientation. So we have one of the, you know, the best industrial designers I've ever had the pleasure to work with, um, um, Alex Ari, who I met again. He was an ex Sony guy. He did industrial design for Sony products for better part of 20 years, and you know he wanted this opportunity as well to design something that wasn't restricted by brand guidelines that he didn't wasn't involved with that he was just a, um, a steward that the years and the lineage beforehand said this is how we need to do it and this is what but he takes that knowledge and that um, directional sense and really starts to be able to put that into product that it's just breathtaking I mean I know that you're you know although we're on a podcast you can see some of the stuff that we've got lying around our office and we don't make our your typical you know, color palettes. We don't make your typical looking um, headphones or speakers um, for that matter. And that's kind of one of those proud moments of we don't need to make a black product just because that's what, you know, everybody makes because that's the safe thing to do. We can make a navy or a, a dark gunmetal looking product um, with some accent points on it so that, you know, it, it has that lifestyle and that accessory sense to, you know, really be a complimentary piece, not just something that you pulled off the wall that is black in color because you don't know what else to to, uh, to choose from, right? So it sounds like you guys really approach it from a form followed by function type of mentality? Um, we actually start with the consumer. Okay. You know, you know, especially in this industry, you have to start with like, are you solving a problem or are you just adding another product to the pile of products that are out there? And so we always try to identify if there's a problem or something missing within a specific category or um, whether it's a headphone, you know, whether it's a true wireless product, you know, our first true wireless product, we knew that there was two things that were happening in the market. These uh, true wireless earbuds were small. They were popping out of people's ears and they didn't last very long as far as battery life. So we went to task with how do we solve both of those problems and who can we partner with to help solve those problems? So the first product ally, um, that we came up with 10 hour battery life with the earbuds alone, which was more than double the industry standard at that time. And then you, you can charge them in the case, you get an extra 20 hours of runtime. So before you have to actually plug it into power, you know, you're looking at 30 hours of runtime, which is, you know, the better part of most people's work week. Yeah, for sure. 
And then you know, we wanted to make sure that there was a secure fit. And so we partnered with a company called Freebit and uh, worked on a design to make sure that it could uh, stay uh, in the ear no matter what you were doing. And you know, that's just one aspect of trying to solve a problem um, within a compacted market instead of just coming up with another product that looks like something else. And then you add a high design sensibility and what people actually want to wear and the style that they want to wear that Alex really brought to the table. And we start to see some uh, some success uh, with, with our small brand. Yeah. I mean, the product line is obviously gorgeous and such, but like because of the prototyping process taking a year, a lot of that is is the back and forth. Right. Because where are these things made? Primarily, uh, yeah, in China. Yeah. So, are you guys flying to China to do these things, or is it mostly done in conjunction over email, obviously, uh, with like CAD drawings and three D modeling? Like, what what's what's kind of that? And like, how many iterations does it take to get it right? Usually, on average. Yes. Yes to all of it. Um, iteration wise, I mean, it it really depends. I mean, you could go from, you know, a dozen iterations to you know, double or triple that depending on the intricacies of the product or the acceptance of, you know, the form factor and style. And then, you know, you have to make concessions throughout the, the development of the product because, you know, we still have to work with acoustic engineers and there, you know, there's limitations on driver size or we have an idea in our head of like, it needs to sound as good as this. And we can't deviate from that. Otherwise we might not be in the right position within the market to see success. So it really varies depending on the project. Some of them are, are a little bit more out there where our, you know, we could be in like, you know, 50 different, you know, iterations of it before we actually go into our first, you know, test production. Or it could be some other ones where we're like, all right, we're pretty confident that this is the right direction that we're going in and it's only like four or five. Uh, but, but it really varies depending on the, the complexities of it and the driver technology that we want to implement. Or if, uh, in a lot of cases, like if we're partnering with a, another technology company, you know, what are their competencies and what will we learn throughout that process? I mean, we're a young organization with a, a ton of experience when it comes to our executive and executive team and our, our design team. And we have a fantastic partner in, um, in China that helps us build the products um, so much more um, so that they are uh, one of our major investors in the, in the company as well. Oh, wow. So we actually have um, a dedicated group of engineers um, in space inside the factory that produces our product. And so they work with the production team and um, with us. So it's a lot of late calls, uh, a lot of communication on email. But we have, you know, with our small staff, we were able to create some really high quality um, technologically advanced products in short periods of time. And, and we've been able to bring some of the first to market, um, you know, that our larger competitors haven't been able to do and, but are working towards. Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former standard age podcast guest, Tim Jackson comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, 
where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Aaron. So how exactly did you find the manufacturers then? Were those partners through Sony and, and Sound United and places like that? Or um, yes Was there no. any like cold calling involved? Like how do you, I mean? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, some of it is is referrals, knowing people within the industry and asking questions of like, hey, who, who have you worked with? Who can you connect us with? Sure. Um, or, you know, can you make this um, introduction and then does it work business wise for both parties? You know, being a small organization, our yield rate is extremely small. So some of, of what our partners do, they take a little bit of risk um, with us as well. But they know that, you know, what we're producing is an example of not only what we can do, but what they can do as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of the, the lures that like, you know, Qualcomm has with us or, you know, our partnership with Amazon and their voice services group and same thing with Google and their voice services group is we can execute on a high level in a much shorter period of time than some of their larger manufacturers because we don't have, you know, a, a giant ship to Those make a right hierarchy. turn on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah little the, the red tapes aside, but we don't have that giant machine that we need to turn right. We can just take a, a few of us, work on a side project, come up with some ideas and concepts, and then be able to go back and pitch it and then execute in a different scale because of our close partnership with uh, with our factory. So what were some of the products that were first to market or if there's only one? So no? with, with Clear specifically, um, the brand was founded in 2012 um, by previous uh, management team, um, as well as uh, this investment group that we're working with you know, still to this day, um, they're focused more on DJ headphones, um, than they were more, uh, than the lifestyle and, and consumer, you know, kind of quality product. Um, that group kind of fizzled out and didn't necessarily pay off, um, very well, though they did start the brand in, into some good fanfare. Um, it just didn't have sustainability based on the market, um, changes. Uh, when Patrick came on, he kind of restructured just the direction of the organization to really focus on, you know, these lifestyle consumer products, not only in a performance audio sense, but in a high design. So it wasn't about just looking like a DJ. We wanted to make sure that it was fashionable for um, both men and women, but also um, high performance. And so that's where, you know, Alex got involved. And then, of course, uh, myself more recently uh, got involved to be able to take it to where we're at today. So from the current um, iterations, our first product to market was uh, the Edge Pulse, um, which is a workout headphone, um, and the Trek, which was a, a wired noise canceling product. And then our first, um, you know, where we started to see some real big success was our Flow product. Uh, and we saw that in, uh, within the noise cancellation market, so going right after the big boys, but we did it a little bit differently. Like we didn't, you know, want to go after a traditional, you know, unibody kind of construction so you know as you're looking at them uh, next to you you can see like there's accents with the uh, you know uh, rings on it that kind of showcase some of the design elements we wanted to make sure that they were highly comfortable but also uh, performed admirably well and then we wanted to make sure the audio performance was just 
fantastic uh, with noise cancellation on. So we spent a lot of time tuning the product to make sure that when you're adding additional noise to cancel the ambient stuff that's going around you on a flight, um, that we could do it in such a way that we weren't affecting the sound quality or the um, frequency range of the headphones um, in that process. And they're super comfortable, by the way. <laughs> I <laughs> well, mean, thank you. All the while, you know, I mean, if I've used them for long flights and such as well. And honestly, I, I remember my first over-ear headphone were those DJ ones by Sony in like 2002. Yeah. The silver ones, the DJ, I can't remember, like something 500. I can't remember the model number, but... And I just always remembered they would always push on my ear. They had like a 50 millimeter driver inside, if I'm not mistaken. Huh. And like they just over time, they would just hurt my ears. Mm -hmm. Whereas these have, I don't know, a deeper time of uh, type of recessed kind of cushion, I guess. Yeah, we do use memory foam. Um, the ear opening is, is a part of it. But then there's also that balance of... Um, noise isolation as well as uh, performance. So we try to make sure like the angle of the ear pad is correct, um, the pressure so that we can still keep that, uh, when you don't have them turned on, um, you still have a good isolation. And then when you turn them on, it only gets that much better. Um, it, you know, it goes back into the ergonomics of, of what the consumer um, needs or wants based on how they're using the product. So I think what, you know, some of the opportunities that we've taken advantage of is getting closer to the consumer, understanding what is missing in the market, that it's not a uh, um, one product fits all kind of uh, uh, situation. Well, you've mentioned some of the investors and the partners, and I guess your manufacturing facility being one of them. Can you touch a little bit more on like what that structure looks like right now? Or is that I don't want to talk about anything too off limits. We don't have no, to talk numbers or percentages, but like, what is that relationship like when your manufacturer has a say or kind of a? Well, one, they don't necessarily have a say. Right? Okay. They're they're an investment partner, right? So they partner with us in different areas where they might come in and say, "Hey, we want to introduce you guys to this vendor or this technology partner that we've worked with before." They might be able to solve something that you guys were working on. Or, hey, they've got an idea. Can you guys bring this to a product iteration? How would that look? So I think one of the opportunities that we took advantage of is an introduction between us and Royal. So Royal is a Chinese company that's been working on flexible screen technologies. So we got the introduction. We saw what they were working on. And we said, OK, what can we do with an audio product that could leverage a flexible screen? Not only for us to continue to show our design aptitude, but our execution and technology um, aspects of it. But what can we do to kind of change the, the landscape? And that's where the Mirage product kind of came from was the idea behind um, executing a flexible screen inside a smart speaker. And Very so, cool. And so that product will actually hit the market in uh, um, early April timeframe with uh, one of the first uh, flexible AMOLED displays um, with uh, Alexa smart voice control in it. Wow. Well, we'll touch a little bit more on kind of like the expansion, I guess. But like, how do you balance selling the current models and sort of um, beginning to promote the latest and greatest, speaking of expansion, I guess. But like, if you know what's in the works and you've already come up with this flow headphone, how do you go about continually selling the old stuff, for the lack of a better description, while also promoting something newer? Uh, it's actually fairly easy. Because we know where the next iteration is going to go because it solved problems that we've 
you know, not just with our, our own product that we might discover, like, hey, this execution wise wasn't as good, but we see how the consumers are reacting to it, what they're saying, like, you know, consumer reviews, whether it's a, a call to our, our uh, um, technical support line or if it's a review on Amazon, we actually read these and we talk about them you know, fairly regularly because we want to make sure that we offer the best product. But what we are encouraged with is that we know that it's the best product we have in the market and it's only going to get better. And so we kind of keep that focus on when you line up what we're making versus the competition, we're always extremely proud with how we stack up. And so being able to push it and promote it and know that it's a great opportunity for consumers to, to get a product that they're going to have for years to come is, is always you know, the forefront of the mind. Knowing what's coming only gets us more excited because if we can build on these stories today with great product, the next product's only going to be even better. And in the headphone space, I mean, everybody needs more than one pair of headphones, depending on your use case, right? You probably, most people have like a pair for the gym and then they have a casual pair that they might wear around the house or, or at at the office in a lot of cases. And then they have that uh, premium noise cancellation that they, you know, get on the tin can in the air and want to be, uh, avoid that random conversation with the person sitting next to you. And you need to, to cancel out that drone of the engine noise for, for hours on end. So there there's those levels. And then of course there's one more step above for, for really the enthusiast to get that, you know, the ultimate set of headphones so that when you can't blast your, your loudspeakers in your house, you can put a, an equal experience on your head um, with headphones. So you mentioned Amazon. Can you touch on a little bit about what your distribution looks like and like kind of what percentages maybe direct to consumer would you say versus wholesale versus I don't are you doing fulfillment by Amazon like what what are you guys up to? Yeah, we we do a lot of fulfillment by Amazon um and we also sell through our um our own website and then we've we've also recently expanded into some regional um brick and mortar stores. So if you're in the um Utah, Nevada and then Northern California, we're in RC Willie. And then we're working with a, a handful of other regional um, dealers um, through the course of this past month, which has been pretty successful of our CES showing. And so we'll be in many more regional dealers uh, over the next uh, three to four months as we uh, continue to build our uh, reputation as well as uh, get our product out to these uh, retailers as they reset their floors for the upcoming calendar year. So, yeah, my next question was sort of like what would have been the avenues of promotion as well? You mentioned CES. Obviously, that's a huge one. Consumer Electronics Show yes. in Vegas every January. Every January for, for many, many years with I think there's 180,000 um, attendees this year. Um, a lot of what we're doing is focused on um, press engagement as well as retailer engagement at, the, at that event. Um, but we spend a lot of time on social media. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying to participate in different media formats, so including podcasts, but as well as uh, um, a lot of press interviews, a lot of product reviews, um, so to speak, so that we can expose the brand. I think that between our PR efforts and our uh, social media efforts, it's a majority of our, our marketing budget is spent in that kind of realm. And then, of course, you know, we need to spend a ton of time on digital marketing efforts because we know that's where consumers shop and working on, within the Amazon marketplace is that double-edged sword. It's crowded. It's crazy. It's not inexpensive, but it's absolutely fulfilling because it's, again, you're getting a lot of eyeballs on your product and your brand, but then you're getting real-time feedback. If someone likes your product, you're going to hear about it. And if someone doesn't like your product, you're definitely going to hear about it. Uh, not only directly if they contact customer support, but we're going to hear about it through their reviews. And uh, fortunately, we've, we've had a really positive experience with uh, all of our customers to date. As far as pricing goes, how have you guys determined your pricing? And like, 
what was like the driver behind whatever you would label your market segment that you're geared towards? Sure. Um, there's a lot of different elements that come into it. Like first the cost of manufacturing and the volume that we think we can do at a certain price point, you know, of course, and the profitability that we need for every model to contribute to the bottom line. But ultimately, how do we fit in that crowded marketplace? Like, you know, there are premium expensive brands like the Sony's and the, and the Bose and the beats of the world. And then there's other products, right? And then we want to make sure that we're, in that other product segment, we're not at the cost leader, but we're more in that premium um, audio market that gives high technical aptitude, great performance capabilities at a much more reasonable price. And so we're probably anywhere between 25 to 30% less expensive than some of the larger brands out there. Um, and that's done very intentionally because we wanna make sure that we provide a significant value for the consumer. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's one of the fortunate things about being in a smaller organization that uh, we've got pretty low overhead. I mean, you're, you're sitting in our office, uh, we're nothing glamorous, but it's a, it's functional. That's kind of how we, we operate as an organization is, uh, yeah, eventually we'll, we'll grow. Um, and we're okay with that taking time, but we want to make sure we do it in a very thoughtful and organic way so that we're delivering the best possible product to our customers, um, every month, every year, every iteration, we want to make sure that there's a lot of value added into it. And, you know, fancy, uh, headquarters don't necessarily constitute great product. It just means you have a fancy headquarter. Speaking of growth, as far as product offerings, how do you determine how many products you guys offer as, as you know, as your total assortment? Um, it varies. Um, it goes back into the, the first thing, like what problems are we solving? Sure. Um, what's the, how co uh, complicated the product is and then what's the competitive marketplace. So, you know, we try to keep it very focused on what we think we can make, um, headway in and then stuff that we think that's going to be, uh, uh, much more, uh, competitive. We, we will shy away from, I think like, you know, one of the interesting uh, products that we brought to market at CES was a, a model called arc. And this was an ear pad let. Yeah, ear pad less headphone. And so, uh, you know, it, it the whole concept is behind how do you increase situational awareness without having to do away with a headphone. And so we created not only an interesting design, so it looks somewhat like a headphone and um, on trend, but also serves a purpose of a really robust audio experience without having to blast you know, your own eardrums, but people around you so that we can keep it at a respectable level so that if you're, you are talking to someone, the odds are they might barely hear, if not at all, the headphone. But we wanted to solve a problem in the market because those um, ear padless headphones that are out there currently, they don't do a really good job sonically of presenting the music, right? Like they have a limited frequency range because of the technology that they choose to implement. So we looked at it a little bit differently, like how can we improve? How can we change this um, for the better? And so that's where where the art came uh, came from. And so we were really excited to see the amount of consumers and retailers actually talking about it. Because again, this was one of those things that we kind of just, hey, will this work? What's the interest if we're really going to do this? And we were, we surprised ourselves with the amount of excitement that uh, we garnered around it. That's awesome. So as the company has evolved. Walk us through a little bit of like some of the changes and adaptations you've had to make and be it, you know, what should the employee count, for example, now from when even a year ago, maybe? Um, we've added uh, two additional bodies, so that's good. Um, but I, I think the biggest challenge is 
not only the human resource, but the financial resource and, and part of our stewardship of the brand and trying to build that momentum is doing things that are appropriate for the size of our organization, um, throughout our growth strategy. So, you know, yes, we can go out and secure celebrities and yes, we can go out and do all sorts of crazy marketing and advertising campaigns and TV commercials, but are we prepared to handle that kind of workload and, you know, not just on a, on a physical, but on a cost wise, and will it translate to us in a product, um, performance area or a revenue stream. And we want to make sure that as we do this, like we're, we're building our brand and our organization in a way that we can strategically grow as our sales grow. And so a lot of what we've been doing over the course of the past year, if not more than is how do you set that foundation? How do you set that foundation for growth? It's not always about the, the shiny lights in the front end that where you can see, Oh, wow, that's an amazing image. It's really, does that image pay off where it has the right meta tags and is it associated correctly with the storytelling that you want to, is it on brand? How do you tell those, those micro stories along the way so that as you start to grow as an organization, you can evolve effectively versus just grow really big. And then now what, and then you're onboarding a whole new staff and you're growing so fast that you can't really sustain you know, you can sustain the momentum, but you can't really sustain the direction of the company. And I think that as you look at a lot of small organizations, it's, you know, there's two really difficult things to do, build a product and then grow over time without having to, you know, and grow profitably over time without having to really change your heartbeat of the organization. So how on the forefront is the marketing effort then? Because, you know, profitability marketing dollars come straight out of that, I would imagine. So a hundred percent, you know, so it, you know, do you guys subscribe to the stereotypical 10%, you know, rule of, of marketing or? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, and this is where we kind of pick our battles. Like when we do have a foundational marketing plan, um, you know, it's about 10% of our overall revenue, but more importantly, like we look at what's our opportunities and where are we going to get the most out of those dollars? So a lot of what I focused, um, our spend on is, you know, the backend infrastructure of our site, because we need to make it and optimize it in an effective way so that we can convert more efficiently so that it, when we do drive traffic, we're actually converting traffic, not just driving traffic and watching page abandonment. Um, but also, how do you raise the visibility in a credible way for our our products and our brand story? And so a lot of that's through press and through social media. So we spend um, a ton of time, um, not only my own and then um, but the, uh, the leadership's time but also our financial resources on PR programs and making sure that we can talk to the media and that we can tell our story and we can tell it not only with every product iteration, but we can tell our brand and our directional stories so that as we continue to grow, it's only going to continue to um, echo these stories that we've told. And then, you know, with the overall, you know, marketing stuff, like how do we have the right photography done? How do we have the right video work done? And do we blitz it and do it all at once? Or do we do it strategically over time as we look at products entering the market and being able to tell these stories. Cause you know, as a marketer, I would love to have a huge tool chest of, you know, financial and human resources that I could throw at projects. I mean, that's what it makes my job a ton of fun doing it, but it's also those strategic opportunities and those chances that you take that can pay off down the line because you were smart enough or educated enough in, uh, with experiences that you're able to say, okay, you know what, this is really enticing but we're not ready for that kind of approach. And I think like celebrity endorsements and some of the influencer stuff that you start to see, you know, those are prime examples of a lot of companies. It's easy to pay someone to 
to tell a story, but are you in the right spot when you pay that person to help tell your story that you're going to be able to take all the benefits of that and uh, capitalize on it? And I think it's, it's one of those uh, daily, if not weekly conversations that we have as, as an organization. And as I you know evaluate any of our business opportunities uh, with uh, other companies, it's like, does it make sense? If it doesn't make sense today, will it make sense in a year from now? Or is it just not aligned with our brand strategy? So have you guys experienced anything that is... Uh, just abundantly clear that some no pun intended, uh, abundantly clear that it has worked better than other, like that slow trickle versus like the big dump, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Our PR strategy has been fantastic um, with the agencies we partnered with both here in the U.S. as well as in the U.K. Um, the amount of work and reviews and credibility that they've added to the brand and our product stories has been tremendous. So much so that a year from now, there was a handful of retailers that wouldn't talk to us. At CES, they all showed up and they all set up meetings with our, our sales leader to start evaluating contracts and partnerships and seeing how they can bring us into their stores. So these PR efforts have actually reached out to specific retailers for you on your behalf? Uh, no, not on our behalf, but because of the stories that they were able to generate with our support, we were able to build a reputation you know, where these buyers were reading about us in publications and then they're wondering like well why don't we carry that yeah like who are these guys right yeah. and like, you know, when we're getting like you know five-star reviews or best of show kind of awards and they're like well wait a second why oh you guys are legit you you did show up you did do your your homework you did your due diligence on the products and you're bringing stuff to market that the press you see hundreds of companies and thousands of products every year are actually taking notice and spending time to write about I think it's a it's a really valuable way that it's it's not just a consumer word of mouth as much as it is the professional reviews that are are really certain to to come come in for us and and get behind us as an organization. That's great. Where so where's the company going? Like where do you see it expanding? So right now our focus is on re regional dealers, um, mostly because they have um, not only a strong relationship with their consumers but a strong educated sales floor. I think that when you look at in the audio space, whether it's home audio or headphones, it's, it can be a commoditized market. And what that means in a lot of cases is like, yeah, we're one of hundreds of brands that can show up. I mean, if you've ever been on Amazon, you can see there's hundreds, if not thousands of brands at this point at all different price levels. Now, are some products great and some products bad? Absolutely, like with any market. But building that credible story over time is where we see um, our overall growth. So we're gonna start with this regional strategy and online strategy um, for now and build and make sure that we can not only have a great relationship with our retailers, but then take that into a national level down the line when we're ready as an organization to support that kind of presence. Because again, we know that we don't wanna show up um, you know, on the big stage and then fail. We wanna show up and succeed and make sure that we can drive this value that we offer the consumers uh, um, nationwide. In order to do that, we need to be prepared for that opportunity. And so right now, this year, as well as last year, and then you know, possibly next year is all part of that strategy of moving our brand to, uh, into the space where we're ready for that challenge, where we can um, take advantage of it. Yeah, that's great. What's been sort of the hardest part, would you say? Not being able to go as fast as we would like. Um, and that's with retail assortment as well as marketing and just general efforts. I mean, we're, yeah, there's seven of us in the U S um, 
six of us in this office that you're in right now, and we're small. Uh, and we all have seen and been in experiences with huge corporations with tons of resources. And we know where we need to get. We just can't move fast enough um, to get there. And I think that's kind of um, some of the frustration that, that we all have. But we also understand that there's a level of patience that we need to show over the course of time because it's only going to benefit us. Because, you know, like we had talked about before, if we rush we're not going to be ready. Yeah. I was going to say, it almost sounds like a positive problem due to the fact that like, it's easier to know what's ahead and, and like the, the reward being the anticipation, right. Versus like trying to keep your head above water. Yeah. But we all know what that prize is at the end of the end of the day. So that's where the excitement comes from. But, you know, we also like to, to kind of reflect back on, you know, we want to make thoughtful products. We want to be a brand. We don't want to just discount product to get on shelves and to drive large volumes. I mean, anybody can do that. Not everybody can come up with a brand story and a consumer relationship that adds value into, uh, you know, a really compacted, uh, marketplace. And, you know, right now that's kind of our, our focus is how do we build that relationship? How do we build that brand visibility and, you know, the right products, uh, for consumers. How, well, that was another thing I wanted to ask you based on distribution. And, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about the wholesale distribution and working with mm -hmm. retail partners. How do you guys go about vetting them or sifting through the ones that you may or may not want to get in? Have you guys experienced anything where you've wanted to be a part of this retailer, but they're just, you know, they're just not taking you on? Like, what have, how have those relationships evolved? Well, I mean, yes. Yes to, to everything you just said. I think that, you know, one thing, you know, having been in the industry and knowing a lot of the buyers from our previous companies um, helps because at least we can get a conversation started. But having the right reputation, because as much as you want them to trust you, they're still taking a risk for their own job and their own company that they want it to pay off. And collectively, everybody wants, you know, the organization to succeed. And so you got to do it in the right instance, in the right situation and, and, you know, building the momentum in PR with the, you know, the technical press and the enthusiast press and the lifestyle press and then getting this momentum, the stories being told helps them have confidence that there is viability in the product. Um, you know, the right size and the right, you know, relationships is all about like, you know, the distributors and the rep firms that we, we sign up how our sales leader you know looks at not only what the retailer is but how they work with their consumers because the more we're at a time where we can be selective just like they're at a, a time where they can be selective as as well we want to make sure that we have that right relationship um between the organizations that makes sense which is why we've been targeting a lot of the smaller more educated sales floors um and these guys that are that mean something to their customers they're not the the larger chain stores where you know they just want you to come in and pick up your item and, and leave, you know, order online, get it and go. And there is no relationship. A lot of these uh, retailers work with uh, mid to higher end goods. Um, they've got long-term relationships. And if it's not the first purchase from a customer, it's probably their fifth or 10th or, or 50th over the course of, you know, the company's, uh, you know, time in business. And I think it's, it's fascinating to some of these more regional dealers that are stalwarts in their marketplace. Like they're not getting knocked out of business because Amazon is online. They're taking advantage of it. They're uh, and and really continue their reputation, whether it's with a custom installation or higher end audio or people looking for good advice. I mean, they know that a lot of these 
um, educated sales floors, like these guys are professional salesmen. They've been in the business for years. It's not a summer job um, that someone has as a passing hobby to get a discount on the new gaming system that they're going to release or, you know, an iPhone, right? Right. So what, I mean, obviously I come from the apparel side of retail, so there's a very seasonality type of, you know, you, you buy twice a year for fall, winter, spring, summer. What is the consumer electronics approach? Is it, is it annual or do you show the sample like you do in fashion and then you take orders and then go to production accordingly? Like what's, how does it work? Uh, a lo lo lot of similarities. Like we do have annual resets that we have to work towards for retailers, but then you have the seasonality of when people buy a product, right? You know, like summer travel is a huge opportunity for us as a headphone company because people are buying stuff to go on, on a trip with, um, back to school. And then of course the, the holiday season is also really big and you know, even father's day. And so gearing up new product introductions or, um, bundles or sales opportunities that focus around that always helps with the, the selling and sell through. I mean, um, it's amazing what some of these larger retailers can also do with their own, you know, private sales or, um, their own demand generation within their, their own market, depending on what's happening in their regional space. So what's been easy for you guys? Wow. Um, coming to work, you know, really, and getting behind the brand and the passion that's happening. I mean, we've, you know, we're all seasoned in the industry and we've all been in and out of, of, you know, iconic brands. You know, you lose some of that passion with some of these larger organizations because you don't have that ownership. You don't have, and it's not even a control um, aspect of it, but it's the willingness to take that experiment and bring it to market or that idea and that concept and know that you've had a hand from, the ideation to the execution and the success is built on your hard work, not, and, and your team's hard work, not the fact that your company is a hundred years old and people have bought generations of it. And it's a feature up of an older generation, but really this is a, a, a thoughtful product that we solve the problem for. So I, I think it's kind of really what, what gets us going. Like we have a really good team. It's a fun environment. And it's one of those things where, you know, everybody's involved with almost every aspect of the business because there are so few of us and the experience that we've all had collectively makes what we do um, that much better than some of our competitors. You know, we're not, um, we're not young kids, um, so to speak, but we are young enough and have enough energy that we can take our experiences, the good and the bad, and we learn from it and we want a real positive experience uh, and a, a team experience. It's not about pointing fingers. It's about accepting the situation and being patient and, you know, enjoying coming to work. I mean, this has been the most fun I've had in my career over the past year, you know, being in a new, young, small company. Um, you know, we got to be scrappy. We got to come up with ideas regularly to stand out and to compete with these large organizations that have a war chest. I mean, not only with human resources, <clears throat> but with, you know, cash, right? We don't have that aspects of it, so, but we can do things that they can't do as well. You know, we can join conversations on a podcast and have, and, you know, and not have to get permission from 14 different managers in order to make sure that this is okay. And then have, you know, a handler sitting close by to make sure that you're on message. We can actually speak from our own experience, speak from the heart and show what we're all about as an organization, pretty unbettered. And so it, it's a, it's been a fun experience, especially like dealing with media. I mean, my experience when I started out in PR 
and working for huge brands and, you know, chaperoning executives and helping tell the brand story and then be able to translate that to being the story has been, has been an absolute blast. Cool. Well, just kind of wrapping things up a little bit, you've got your product catalog here for 2020. Yeah. What, what do you want to talk about? What's, wow. what's like, coming out that you're just jazzed about? I, I think one of the most exciting products that we have coming out is called the Crescent. And so it's a smart audio speaker. So we're still working on who our voice assistant partner will be. But what's really unique about this product uh, that's got me um, especially excited about is that we took the concept of everybody has a smart speaker, right? We understand that, but they all look the same. They're either a cylinder they're wrapped in fabric or they're a square box. And, you know, you've got a wedding ring on just like I do. I'm, I don't live in my house by myself. So putting a black speaker in my house, even with all my experience and tenure in the industry, is always frowned upon with my wife. You know, and even my kids are like, ah, Dad, that's ugly. Um, so the Crescent kind of transforms that environment. So we did take, just like the name, a Crescent style shape to it. It's high design um it's a gorgeous color variant it's not black we probably most likely won't even have a black model that will come out but the idea of it is like how do you have this piece of audio um fit into a home environment and look like it belongs looks like it's a you know a statue or a fixture that you per you you purchased in order to accentuate the design of your living space now what makes it even more exciting on a technical side is we actually um, worked with a company on a collaboration of a linear array um, design. So that's basically putting the eight speakers that it'll have all in, in a single line, and it has a little bit of a crescent shape to it. Um, we developed some specific um, driver housings to be able to support the linear array. And then with uh, the technology of the, our, our partner company called Dysonics, um, we were able to execute um, some really unique sound profiles that take this single box environment and make it feel like you're listening to more than one speaker. And not just in a, I'm gonna bounce a bunch of loud noises off of walls, but actually in a, a very uniform effect where you can sit in a um, reasonable space and not have to bounce anything off of walls, but it uses phase and time alignment to create a three-dimensional sound field or a two um, speaker sound field where you feel like the left and right speakers are actually there when it's really just coming out of a single unit with multiple speakers in a, in a linear array. So that to me has been just really exciting to be a part of from not only the design orientation of it and having my two cents in it versus just being delivered a design and say, go market it. Um, but also on the technology side and the different like listening sessions that we've had as an organization and input that we've had on how it sounds and what it's supposed to be. And, you know, presenting it for the first time at CES, it was mind blowing the amount of excitement that we were able to generate. You know, it it way surpassed our expectation just at the show alone, where we knew we had something special, but to see the accolades, I mean, as a product, it received, a, was it a three best of show at CES? That's so, awesome. Which was fantastic, and then we ranged uh, um, a gamut of those awards. So we got a best of show from House Beautiful. So we have that design and and female publication, um, but then we also got a best of show from AVS Forum, which is the complete opposite spectrum, because that's a more of an enthusiast, all about performance in the audio space, and um, the editor 
um, Mark, when he had, you know, pulled out the award from his bag after, you know, we had spent time uh, demoing the product to him, he's like, he was blown away. He's like, look, I just listened to Sony's, you know, 3D sound that they did. And it's still in this, you know, prototypical kind of sense of like, here's a statement piece, but we don't even know if it's going to come to market. Here's some iterations of it. He's it's, like, it's like the, the, uh, the prototype car that would, you know, be released that may never come out. Right. But it, it proved that they can do a technology. Sure. And then he came and visited us. And not only did he see our concept of, you know, a little bit different of an iteration of, of how to do three dimensional sound, but really how to take a single box solution and make it sound like it's a multi-speaker um, experience, but then execute it with, oh yeah, we're going to ship it later this year. And that just blew him away because he has seen tons of iterations over his career and the amount of products that he's touched that say they can do certain things, but then never deliver or never come to market. And when we demoed it, we didn't have walls that we were bouncing stuff off of. I mean, we were on a trade show floor, tons of noise. Yeah. And he was thoroughly impressed with our execution. And we're only about 80% done of the sound quality of it. So there's still room for us, both in a software and a hardware sense, to continue to improve before we bring this to, to market. But that excitement alone. And then to top it off, a week after we got back, we received a best of show from Newsweek. And so like to hit like those three pillars for us was just... It was awesome. Astronomical. So, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. That's Thank amazing. You. Thank you. And that of course brings retail interest when they start reading about all the, all the products that came to market or were introduced at CES and they start reading about, you know, us little old, you know, clear folks and, uh, you know, the products that we were able to introduce and the, the new concepts, the new thoughtfulness that we're putting into the market instead of just one more product after another, like some of the other brands do, um, that have little or no difference to the previous generation they're starting to take notice and I think it's going to be a, a really exciting year for us in 2020. Yeah. That's super exciting. Well, is there anything else you'd want to promote or chat about? Um, really it's to, you know, get to know our brand. I mean, clearaudio.com. Um, we've got, uh, all of our product available, um, that's currently shipping. Um, you can buy direct from us. You can check us out on Amazon. Uh, but also really importantly, follow us on social media. Um, we're, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, we're telling a lot of stories, not just about what we're individually passionate about, but um, what we want to be as a, as a brand as we continue to evolve. I mean, we did a whole campaign um, called Own the Moment where we worked with local San Diego um, dancer, musician, and artist to kind of tell that story of what it's like to uh, embrace audio and, and how it helps them uh, through their daily life. Fantastic. Well, Aaron, again, uh, thanks so much for taking part in the show. Really uh, excited to have you on. Thanks for having us. Appreciate being here. All right. Well, let's chat soon. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Aaron. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Aaron one more time for having me over to the Clear Audio offices. Sincerely appreciate him dedicating his time. Of course, as always, using his headphones for the podcast has been a wonderful experience, and they're also incredibly useful for long flights. Uh, their noise cancellation properties, etc., have been instrumental in my travel. Uh, also, thank you to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the title track. And we will catch you next week. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. <laughs>